This is They Create World, Episode 23, The Complete Tetris Story. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going over the story of legend. The one with twist and turn, KGB agent, mysterious mystery, and a craze that pretty much was the entire video game industry for at least a year, if not longer. I think probably it's fair to say that it's the most widespread mainstream uh, video game phenomenon that has ever happened, quite frankly. Even more than the more recent Pokemon Go. Indeed. We are, of course, referring to the story of Tetris. And it is a grand story. One that is told by a few people. Some people in multiple chapters in a book that is eluding me at the moment. Game Over. Game Over. <laughs> by David Sheff. The History of Nintendo, written in the early 90s. That's the main source for a lot of the information on Tetris. There's a few things that have popped up here and there in other sources as well. And so while there's not much new for us to add to the story, really, though there are a couple of minor tidbits that I don't think have been told before, it's more about kind of bringing these disparate elements together, telling the story from start to finish, and giving it some context in terms of the players involved and how the whole thing panned out. And that didn't happen in the uh, Game Over book? No, not so much. Game Over is a history of Nintendo, and so it's primarily focused on Nintendo. It really doesn't go into the background of where some of the other people and companies were coming from that were involved in all of this. Okay, so it's sort of an actuary thing to Nintendo because Nintendo was so involved in it between the Nintendo port, Game Boy port, and a few other ports of it. Sure. All right, I guess the thing to do is to start from the beginning. Who came up with the idea of strange shape falling down from the sky and us having to pray to the Tetris God in order to send us a line piece. Line piece. Line piece. Line piece. Line piece. Yes. <laughs> Good old Tetris God. So anyway, the story of Tetris begins, as I think most people are aware, in the Soviet Union in the early 1980s. The game was created by a fellow by the name of Alexei Pezhitnov, who was working for the Academy of Science in Moscow on computer systems. He had been a math whiz as a kid, pretty good at all that kind of stuff, and he was also very fond of puzzles. He just loved little mathematical puzzles and stuff like that. So he was initially a math teacher uh, at a technical school, technical university when he got out of school. But then when he discovered computers, that became the new thing that interested in him. And so he moved on to the Academy of Science to work with Soviet computers, primarily on very simple artificial intelligence projects. And he was also responsible for kind of putting new computers through their paces and figuring out what they could do. So one thing that he would often do while in that process was 
make games, simple little games in order to test out the computers, just like Space War was a demo to kind of figure out what people could do with the PDP-1. Games are often a very convenient way to really test out what a computer's capable of. Was he primarily focused with the military side of it, or was he more of an academic side of computer research? Academic side. I mean, in the Soviet Union, obviously all of the work is being done for the benefit of the state, and the state's going to use work for all sorts of purposes. But no, he was at the Academy of Science. That was a civilian institution, though of course still a government institution, because everything's a government institution in a communist country like the Soviet Union. True. He was working with a computer called the Electronica 60. It's a Soviet computer. The Soviet computers are all just clones and knockoffs of Western computers, because while Russians were very good at math and science and all of that kind of thing, they didn't have access to the resources they needed to do really, you know, original design when it comes to high-tech electronics. So this Electronica 60 was essentially a PDP-11, which is a mini-computer from Digital Equipment Corporation, same people that did the PDP-1 that Space War was on, but this is a much later computer released at the beginning of the 1970s. This, of course, is a computer we talked about last time as regards the Galaxy game, because the Galaxy game was programmed on a PDP-11. Right. At this time, in about 1984, Alexei discovered a new puzzle game, because he was very fond of puzzles, and this puzzle game was called Pentonimos. Pentonimos. And what it was is, and I may be mispronouncing it, but what it is is this game where you have a rectangular box and you have plastic pieces that come in that rectangular box. And they're in all sorts of different configurations of five blocks per piece. That's where the penta comes from, five in Mm -hmm. Greek. So what you did is you dumped all of these pieces out of this box and mixed them up and then tried to fit them all back together again. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, except it's there's no picture and it's not jigsaws. It's these five block little dangly bits that you have to all puzzle back together and fit in the box. I presume these are the shapes of what we come to know as the Tetris shapes. No, Tetris is four. Four. Okay. This is five. Okay. Important distinction there. (laughs) So he kind of enjoyed this game, but he thought it might be fun to recreate it on the computer since he was in the habit of creating, you know, little games on the computer, you know, to test systems and whatnot already. Mm -hmm. So he went to recreate Pentominos on the computer, on this PDP-11. Now, no graphics on this thing, this Electronica 60, I'm sorry, which is like a PDP-11. There were no graphics on this except for character-based graphics. So this original version just had things like asterisks standing in for the different blocks. Yeah, tasky art. Mm-hmm, exactly. He started getting these pieces up on the screen, and he put in a routine in order to, like, spin the pieces around. And it turned out that just because that was a relatively trivial process for the computer to do, they could spin around really fast. Hmm. And so when he saw this piece spinning around really fast, he was like, okay... Well, rather than just this kind of static thing, wouldn't it be fun if the pieces kind of came in in real time and then you had to spin them around really fast and, like, get them into a spot? Hmm. And so that was the next step, to do that. 
he discovered quickly that shapes made of five blocks were way too complicated. It led to too many different combinations, and it just wasn't possible to easily do that in real time because you, you wouldn't get the right piece you needed often enough, and you wouldn't have enough time as a human being to process the piece that was being given to you and figure out how to rotate it. So five pieces was way too complicated for that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he did it with four blocks made up of, or shapes made up of four blocks okay, instead of five, five blocks, because that only gives seven possible combinations. And it just so happens that, as my understanding is, you know, there's a lot of theory that seven is about the largest combination that the typical human being is capable of re- remembering. That is correct, from what I know. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why telephone numbers kind of cap out at seven digits, because you can remember a seven-digit telephone number. Right. So it just so happens that four-block shapes lead to only seven possible combinations, which is right at the sweet spot of what a human being can process and remember and handle. So that's perfect then. So he's got his shapes now, and so that works a lot better. Problem now is, of course, that the space fills up very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really fun in theory to have these shapes coming in hot and fast and you have to manipulate them, but then you're done. Either you fit them all together or you run out of places to fit them, you know, within like minutes and the game's over. Right. So that's no fun. So he's like, okay, so what do I do now? Well, the first thing he did was experiment with scrolling. He thought, well, I'll just have the play area continually scroll up and up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work very well either. And so finally he came up with the idea, well, I'll just have the completed lines, if you complete a horizontal line, it'll disappear. Because he notes it's like, okay, well, you know, once a line's filled in, it's not doing anything anymore. So rather than trying to scroll, instead, let's have the lines disappear when they're filled, because that part of the game is done. And it's a save your sense of accomplishment, because I filled the entire line, I get a bunch of bonus points, and well, there's I no, get to go yeah, on. I mean, there's no points at this point. Because we're, we're not there yet. But that's that. And so within just a few hours on a single day, literally, hmm. Tetris was basically created in its uh, mature form. I mean, there were tweaks to do later. There was a scoring system added in later, for instance. The base system is there. And the name, uh, you know, Pentominos, Penta is five. Mm-hmm. Tetra is the Greek word for four. Ah. So it's a combination of Tetra and... Tennis, because tennis was Alexi's favorite sport. Hmm. So he combined the words Tetra and tennis, and he got Tetris. I didn't know it was tennis. Yeah, (laughs) true story. (laughs) He's got this game now on this big Electronica 60 computer, and it's a lot of fun. So sometime in late 84 or early 85, I'm not sure exactly when, another person that's working at the academy with him, a teenage genius named... Vadim Garamisov, mm-hmm. 16-year-old, is just a hotshot with computers. He's still in school, but he's so good with computers that at the academy, they've been having him come in and do, like, troubleshooting stuff, you know, kind of testing, helping them see if they can break stuff, that kind of thing. Oh, nice. And so, you know, he's around, and so he has Vadim convert it to the IBM PC because Vadim has taught himself DOS. Alexei knows nothing about microcomputers. You know, he's working on these mini computer type systems. Right. But Vadim knows DOS. And so he converts Tetris to MS-DOS to the IBM PC or at least whatever 
pirated PC clones or whatever they might have in the Soviet Union. This is the point where it gets real graphics, because now you're actually talking about a system that has graphics. Right. So the the shapes get actual block graphics and different colors for each shape and all of that kind of thing, which is what we think of of Tetris today in terms of on console systems like the NES or the SNES or whatnot, non-black and white systems like the Game Boy is. So at that point, it starts spreading like wildfire. Now, of course, you have to remember, Soviet Union is a communist country. Mm-hmm. So there's there's no copyright. There's so, so people are just pretty much sneakernetting this, handing it off as a disc copy? and Yeah, I mean, it, I don't even think it necessarily has to be sneaked so much because there's there's no copyright. Well, what I mean by sneakernet is just like walking around. Oh, I, I'm aware of what the sneakernet is, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. There's no ownership. There's no copyright. I mean, in a way, it technically belongs to the state because he works for the state and the state owns everything. But it's not like Alexei can go out and sell Tetris in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So it just spreads from place to place to place, and it spreads throughout the Soviet Union. And then the important thing is it gets to Hungary. Hmm. Because, of course, in this time you have the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union is also the dominant power in Eastern Europe, and it has puppet communist governments in all of the nations of Eastern Europe, like Poland and Romania and Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Mm -hmm. And Hungary is a little bit different from the rest of them. It's always been a little more liberal and a little more open, which, of course, got them into a lot of trouble in 1956 when they decided to try to get way more liberal and way more open, and then there was an uprising, and then the Soviets sent their tanks in, and very messy. But Hungary has always been, had always been, more open to kind of the Western world than most of the rest of the Soviet bloc. And so there was some communication, transfer of ideas and products and whatnot, between Hungary and the West, much more so than there was in any other part of the Eastern Bloc. Hmm. One of Alexei's friends actually gave it to some people he knew at the Hungarian Institute of Computer Science, okay. uh, which is called the SCKI. I'm sure that stands for something in Hungarian, but I wouldn't want to try to <laughs> find and pronounce that. It was through here that it was first seen by a gentleman that becomes very important to this story named Robert Stein. Robert Stein. Does he get to be the great villain or the great hero? He gets to be, well, he's neither hero nor villain. He may be the great, uh, well, you know, calling him the village idiot would be far too mean. But you'll see the role he plays. Okay. Robert Stein was Hungarian. His family fled Hungary during the uprising and after the uprising in 1956, hmm. immigrated to England. He became a tool builder. He worked with a lot of companies like Texas Instrument, consulting on stuff that they were doing, and he kind of remained in touch with people back home. So in 1982, he established a company called Andromeda Software that specifically. He would go to Hungary and recruit programmers to create games or applications or whatnot in Hungary, and then try to find publishers to buy them in the West. Hmm. And so he worked with uh, a few different companies that sprang up in this period. The most notable of them is called Novatrade, which created several games for Epics and also created the game Echo the Dolphin for Sega. Hmm. 
They didn't come up with the concept of it, but they were the ones that did the programming for it. So he had this business going where he was bringing software out of Hungary to Europe. And one of his major clients was a company called Mearsoft. Mm-hmm. Mearsoft was part of the Mir Group, which was a massive media empire created by a fellow named Robert Maxwell. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking a real Rupert Murdoch type here who just had ownership of so many different newspapers and publishing organizations and was getting involved in, in television stuff, you know, just all forms of media. That's what the Mir Group was. It's sort of like the Rupert Murdoch version in Europe? Well, Rupert Murdoch's in Europe, too. He's Australian. I mean, Rupert Murdoch's kind of everywhere. But yeah, you know, it's, okay. it's a similar kind of thing. I mean, Rupert Murdoch was around at that time, too. So, I mean, they were, okay. you know, they were medium they were, they were medium together. They were both against together. each other and, and, and trying to figure out where the centers of power were. <laughs> sure. So, Mir Group is huge. And, I mean, they have a lot of worldwide influence. And Robert Maxwell has a lot of worldwide influence. There was a fellow working for the Mir Group in the early 1980s named Jim McConaughey. He just passed away the other year, unfortunately, of cancer. He's one of the real great unsung heroes in this story that doesn't get quite the amount of exposure and recognition that he deserves. Hmm. Jim McConaughey was in charge of, well, he was, uh, he was the development manager for the Mir Group. And as part of that, it was his job to kind of introduce technology into the various processes that the Mir Group was using, you know, into their media business and whatnot. Trying to keep things modernized, keep things up with the times. Exactly. And it was during this time that he discovered the Commodore Pet, one of the Trinity that we discussed earlier, and the member of the Trinity that you may recall that was the biggest in Europe and the biggest in the UK. The mm-hmm. Pet did very well in the UK at a time when computers like the Apple II just weren't because they were so expensive. So he discovered the Commodore Pet, and he discovered VisiCalc. Mm-hmm. And Good combination for right. business. And, of course, he's a businessman. And so he was just fascinated by this. I mean, VisiCalc is, was the killer app for, for businesses and businessmen. So he saw right away that computers were about to be something huge, and he felt that a media group like the Mir Group that's involved in all of the forms of media out there already has got to get in on the ground floor of this computer thing, too, because that's a new form of media that is clearly going to be very important. Mm -hmm. He got permission in 1983 to set up kind of on the side. He didn't give up his day job. It started out as a very small operation, but he got permission to set up Mirsoft as the software arm of the company, and they were doing game stuff, they were doing educational stuff, and they were sourcing materials from a lot of people, and Robert Stein is one of the people that he sourced material from in this early going. Which makes sense, because Robert Stein from Hungary, he can take the, he has contacts there, and it's probably cheap to do programming production in Hungary and then bring it over to the West. Mm-hmm. Though they were getting plenty of stuff from England, too. They were just sourcing from wherever they could get software. Because that's how a lot of the early publishers in the British computer game industry were. Media kind of got involved very early in the United Kingdom, and we didn't really talk about this in our British software industry episode, but the media groups in Britain got involved pretty heavily, pretty quickly, I think more so than in the United States. One example of that was Mirsoft. Another example of that was Virgin, 
which was another conglomerate with media holdings, got involved early with their Virgin Games. And a lot of these companies were just set up by businessmen that knew they had no idea how computer games or computer software really worked. And so what they would do is they would just be the umbrella and then they would invite submissions from all of these bedroom coders that we talked about that were found throughout Britain. Mm -hmm. And they would just hire somebody who kind of knew this stuff a little bit to serve as the guy that would go through and see which submissions were actually worth something. And then they would publish on a royalty basis. This was kind of a common setup. And Mearsoft was very much on the ground floor of this. And they did very well in their first year. And so in 1984, McConaughey did kind of quit his day job and took over Mearsoft full time. It kind of became a proper division of the company. Mm -hmm. He was still in Mearsoft. So he more like he had his this sort of side project he was working on. And then once it got off the ground, he quit his section of the company he was originally working for and then transferred over to this new division. Right. Okay. Yeah. It sort of made it sound like he quit Mirasoft to join Mirasoft. No, he quit his day job with the Mir Group. Oh, right. And being in, in, in charge, uh, he stopped being the development manager for the Mir Group and instead focused all of his attention on this Mirasoft subsidiary. Okay. When Robert Stein sees Tetris, and Robert Stein sees right away that this is a great game, because he's not a gamer, he doesn't mm -hmm. really understand computer games himself, and he loved playing Tetris. That's always a good sign of having a very good game when you have people who, I don't like games, I don't like computers, I don't like any of this stuff. Ooh, this is kind of fun. I like playing this. Click, 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 click. Exactly. And so Robert uh, Stein immediately knows that this is going to be a great thing and works to secure the rights. So let's get back to timeline here. Game is initially created in 84 mm -hmm. and converted to PC, maybe still in 84, maybe in 85, somewhere in there. Robert Stein discovers it in 1986, mm -hmm. June 1986. He immediately starts working to secure the rights from the Soviets. He, he doesn't really, I don't think, have much experience dealing with the Soviet bureaucracy, but he's dealt with the Hungarians, so he kind of knows how these communist countries work. Right. And he immediately starts looking for players on the other side that might be interested in publishing this in the West. He shops it around to a couple of places, and Mirsoft is one of the places that really shows some interest. So here's where it starts to get complicated. In June, Robert Stein sends a telex to the Academy of Sciences in London because he's learned from his Hungarians that that's where it originated. What's a telex? It's like a combination of a fax and a, and a teletype. It's not a facsimile where you put a document in, an exact copy comes out the other side, but it, it travels over the phone lines and it then types out your message on hmm. the other side on a, on a teletype. Never heard of that one before. Oh, very common in business before the advent of the internet. So he sends a telex to the Academy of Sciences because he knows the game's from there and says, you know, I'd like to acquire the rights to this game. Well, the Soviet Union is a communist country. They're not in the business. Obviously, they have people in the Soviet Union that negotiate trade agreements with other countries or what have you, but they're not in the business of dealing with you know, rights to commercial products in this way. They don't have commercial products per se. Yeah, not, yeah, not in, in this way. 
so no one's really sure what to do with the Academy of Sciences because they're they're a science organization. They're not even a trade organization. Right. And, so, and on top of that, you got a you're trying to get rights from an organization that doesn't even deal with anything like that. Exactly. So Pajitnov ends up doing the negotiating at the very early stages himself. The the people at the Academy of Science just basically say, well, why don't you go ahead and do it? But it takes them a long time to figure this all out. I mean, Pashidnov doesn't speak English at this point, and he doesn't have access to a telex or any other means of communicating with the outside world. So it takes them weeks to even figure out how to send a response to Stein. <laughs> and they finally do. Several weeks later, Pashidnov sends a response saying, okay, yeah, that, that could be a good idea. So why don't we talk about this? So that was June. November 1986, Stein gives his formal offer to the Russians, saying, you know, he wants the rights and, you know, you get this much of the, of the money and I get this much and here's how the royalties will be and all that. You know, all the, all the nuts and bolts of what an actual agreement would look like. Mm -hmm. And Pajitnov responds favorably on November 13th. He says, he basically says that sounds good, but he didn't mean that to mean that they had a contract. He sent it in as a, this sounds good, I like the way this is going. Right, but he's not, you know, he's not a business negotiator. He's a mathematics and computer nerd. He's not a businessman. So he just thought that he was indicating a willingness to negotiate based on those terms. Stein kind of thought that they were accepting his terms. Oh, dear. And then there was another kind of wrinkle to it as well, which is that the Soviets were kind of saying that this negotiation is just for the IBM PC version of Tetris. Oh. Specifically. And Robert Stein, he kind of understood that, but he also seemed to think that it was for computer rights generally, not just IBM PC rights. So anything involving electronics? Well, no, anything involving computers, which, which is not all electronics. True, but it, how do you define a computer? Mm-hmm, exactly. How do you define a computer? And that will be very important as this story unfolds. Dun-dun-dun! So, Robert Stein comes away from all of this thinking that he has the rights now to Tetris for computer platforms. Mm-hmm whatever those mean. And to his mind, that includes consoles, because consoles are computers. It doesn't include arcade setups in his mind, even though those are technically, in a way, computers as well. But it, it does include consoles in his mind. And so he thinks he's walked away with all of the rights to computers and consoles. Mm -hmm. So in April 1987, then, you know, he's got this agreement kind of in place in November. He hasn't signed anything yet, but he believes he has an agreement in principle, so it's safe for him to start looking for publishers. Mm -hmm. So in April of 1987, several months later, he starts shopping around to publishers. And at this point, he contacts Mirsoft because he's already got a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And Mirsoft's kind of interested. But at this point, Mirsoft is a very complicated organization, too. Oh, really? And so, yeah, we have to kind of take a step back and look at that. This whole story is all about complex webs of players where nobody knows what anyone's doing. And everyone's just kind of stumbling around in the dark thinking that they're authorized to do what they're doing when half the time they're not. So it's like conspiracy theory. 
But it's not a conspiracy because a conspiracy involves people making a concerted effort to do something. This is just a bunch of people bumbling around and having no idea what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Mearsoft at this point is overseen by Jim McConaughey, who we talked about. Right. His boss is Kevin Maxwell, who is the son of Robert Maxwell. Kevin oversees all of the electronic media groups within the Mir group. Mm -hmm. And so that includes Mearsoft. But then also, as of February 1987, so a couple of months before this is all starting up in April, they also have a U.S. company that is independent of Mearsoft, but is still kind of tied to Mearsoft, and that's Spectrum Holobyte. Hmm. I remember hearing of them in the U.S. Sure. Spectrum Holobyte was founded in 1983 by two guys named Phil Adam and Jeff Souter. Jeff was very interested in hardware. Phil was very interested in software, though Phil was a businessman. He didn't have experience with computers. And so they ended up creating this kind of hybrid hardware-software company where Jeff was doing a bunch of hardware stuff and Phil was selling games. The first game they did was a submarine simulator called Gato that they did for the PC Junior, which was a dismal failure as a computer, but somehow they managed to sell Gato because Phil Adam was a pretty good salesman, so they managed to sell their game, even though the platform was not doing well at all. Mm -hmm. And they kind of got a game business going over the next couple of years, but the hardware business never really did that well. So they found that what little profit they were making in software inevitably had to go to cover what they were doing in hardware. So they weren't really getting anywhere. And the business is maturing. It's not so easy for a small operation to to get much done. You know, the electronic arts of the world have come in by this time. Right. And so they start looking for ways to kind of expand and get better, bigger and get rid of this problem. And so they're put in touch with another company called Nexa, which is run by a fellow named Gilman Louie. Gilman Louie is a real tech guy who's been doing a lot of contract programming. He's also released some of his own stuff, particularly in Japan, including uh, an F-16 game that would later form the basis for the flight simulator Falcon, which is one of the most successful flight simulator series of all time, simulating the F-16. So they get together and they start talking about combining their companies into something larger because that gives them a little more development, a little more size. And also Spectrum Holobyte would move out to where Nex is in California because another problem that Spectrum Holobyte has is that they're in Colorado, which nobody cares about software companies in Colorado. They start negotiating with each other. And at the exact same time, the Mir group comes in and Mirsoft comes in and starts looking for distributors in the U.S. market. They want to buy some distributors in the U.S. because they're looking to expand internationally more. So somehow they all end up meeting. To make a long story short, what comes out of this is that Phil Adam and Gilman Louie convince Mearsoft that rather than buying distributors, they should just buy a publisher in the United States to serve as their outlet over there rather than a distributor. And that what they can do is they'll combine Nexa and Spectrum Holobyte into one company, and then that company will become a subsidiary of the Mir Group. So that's exactly what they do. So it'll be just like Mirsoft, and except in the United States. In a way. And so Spectrum Holobyte and Nexa combine to create a company called Sphere Inc., which is basically a holding company. They continue to publish under the Spectrum Holobyte name, but technically the company is Sphere. Hmm. 
Sphere is 80% owned by the Mir Group and 10% owned by Gilman Louie and 10% owned by Phil Adam. At this point, Jeff Souter gets out and the hardware stuff gets out because Jeff had found some Frenchmen that were willing to invest in his hardware activities that were in no way interested in Spectrum Holobate's software activities. And Mirsoft had no interest in hardware and was only interested in Spectrum Holobyte for its software. So Jeff Souter ends up getting bought out, takes his hardware stuff, and does his own thing. Mm-hmm. Phil Adam and Gilman Louie stay on to run Spectrum Holobyte, which is now owned by the Mir Group. And they remain somewhat independent. They get right of first refusal of each uh, to publish each other's products in their own territory. So Spectrum Holobyte gets right of first refusal to publish any Mirasoft games in the United States. Mirasoft gets right of first refusal to publish any Spectrum Holobyte games in England and Europe. But they still have to license to each other, and they still have the right to refuse. They don't have to publish each other's stuff. They're semi-independent, but at the end of the day, they all still answer to Kevin Maxwell, who's overseen everything. And I think Jim McConaughey is kind of overseeing Spectrum Holobyte as well from the British side. So it's a bit of a complicated relationship but they're kind of all together under the mere umbrella. So McConaughey gets this Tetris game, and he kind of likes it. He also sends it to Gilman Louie and Phil Adam at Spectrum Holobyte to see what they think of it. And they both fall in love with it as well. They love it. Gilman Louie, in particular, kind of hones in on the fact that this is like the first game from Russia. And it's like, yeah, we got to really play up the Russian element. We got to put it in a red box with a hammer and sickle on the front. We have to have Russian iconography. We have to have all of this stuff really pumping that up because in the early 1980s, the Cold War had kind of escalated to the most tense point it had been probably since the 1960s as Reagan really stepped up his anti-Russian rhetoric and the kind of detente that had existed in the late 60s and uh, through the 70s when Brezhnev was the premier of the Soviet Union, was falling apart, and we actually probably came closer to nuclear war than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So yeah, obviously, I, would, I would definitely agree with you there. Right. But then there was a change of heart kind of in the mid-'80s. Reagan started to soften, and you had Gorbachev coming in on the Russian side, the Soviet side, and preaching his glasnost and his perestroika, his idea of openness, and trying to have more ties with the West, which ultimately played a large role in in ending the Soviet Union. So relations had just been really tense. They were just now starting to thaw. And for the first time, the Soviet Union was kind of opening up in a way that Americans were getting glimpses behind the Iron Curtain in a way that they really hadn't in the preceding decades. So there was a lot of interest in the Soviet Union and Soviet-American relations and Soviet-European relations at this time. And so Gilman Louis saw that they really needed to play that up in order to sell this Tetris game. It's a good marketing angle. Exactly. So everybody on the uh, Mirsoft Spectrum Holobyte side is really interested in doing this. So they make a deal. Stein grants the rights to Mirsoft and Spectrum Holobyte in June of 1987 for an IBM PC version of Tetris, and for rights for any other computer system. Those are the words used. Any other computer system. So he gives them the complete computer rights to Tetris. And the ones that he sort of took for himself. But here's the thing. He hasn't taken them for himself yet. He doesn't have a signed agreement yet with the Russians. Okay, yeah. He doesn't have a signed agreement. Remember, he had a verbal agreement Sort of, at least in his mind. On the other side, they're like, 
Yeah, okay, I'm got a good starting point. Tell me more. So he's giving out rights he doesn't actually have yet. That's he's... probably bad <laughs> from the legal standpoint. Yeah, he's confident he can get them, but he doesn't have them. Hmm. More on that later. <laughs> so Tetris makes its debut in the West at the Winter CES show in January 1988. Without the rights. Well, yeah, but that's not important. The Soviets aren't there. Oh, so, true, but still. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. So Tetris makes its debut at the 1988 Winter CES in Las Vegas. Before E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, the video game companies and computer game companies both showcased all of their new products at the Consumer Electronics Show. It was a subsection of the CES. Exactly. And CES is for everybody. I mean, you have stereos there, you have refrigerators there, you have car alarms there. I mean, anything that's an electronic device that you sell to a consumer as opposed to, to selling to the government or to a corporation or, you know, a large group like that kind of falls under the ambit of the Consumer Electronics Show. And so that's where the computer game and video game companies went as well. There are two CESs every year. There's the Winter show in Las Vegas and the summer show in Chicago. In the winter show, you kind of showcase your prototype stuff just to kind of get a sense of what people are interested in, and then you usually take your orders at the June show is, is kind of how it works. So they're at the winter CES. The game is very well received, and it's at this point that the other very important actor in this entire story enters the picture, which is Hank Rogers. Okay. Hi, Hank. You may remember Hank. We talked about him before in the context of Japanese role-playing games. All right. So we won't go into detail about him here because we've already done it. But suffice it to say, Hank, a Dutch-American, had a company in Japan called Bulletproof Software and was releasing games for the Japanese computer market and for the Famicom market. He had a really close relationship with Hiroshi Yamuchi the president of Nintendo, which we did not discuss before. But basically, Yamauchi was not a guy who did recreational things. His entire life was Nintendo and his work, except that he loved the game of Go. Mm -hmm. And he was a very good Go player. So when Hank decided that he wanted to get on the Famicom, which would be very difficult for him because Bulletproof Software was a very small company with not a huge amount of capital, which makes it hard to put up the investment you need for cartridges. Right. He decided that he would have to form a relationship with Nintendo directly in order to be able to do that, and he thought that Go would be the way to do that because he knew Hiroshi Yamauchi played Go. Hmm. So he created a Go game, and it wasn't a very good Go game because Go is a million times more complex than chess, which is already a game way too complex for a puny little Nintendo entertainment system to uh, play competently. Mm -hmm. So obviously he couldn't create a Go AI that was really any good. But because of his boldness in approaching the company and because of this sharing this Go thing with Hiroshi Yamauchi, he actually had a fairly close for a third-party developer relationship with Yamauchi. Mm -hmm. He had a close relationship with Nintendo and he was releasing stuff on the Famicom. So he would always come to CES to see what games he might be able to license at CES to take over to Japan. He saw Tetris mm -hmm. at the Spectrum Holobyte booth, and he fell in love with it. He absolutely wanted to secure the Japanese rights for that game. 
Not the U.S. right, just the Japanese right. Right. He's, his company is in Japan. He doesn't do business in the United States. Right. At this point, you have Hank Rogers taking interest, and Phil Adam also, and this is a point where stories kind of diverge, and this is one of those things that is a little new to the story from my interviews, because I've interviewed Phil Adam and Gilman Louie both from Spectrum Holobyte. Hank Rogers has always said that he's the one that then started trying to get Nintendo interested in Tetris. Mm -hmm. Phil Adam, though, tells the story that he's the one that did that, because at the same CES, he showed Tetris to Ron Judy, who had been with Nintendo of America since almost the beginning of the company, and at this point was the head of Nintendo's European operations, such as they were. They didn't have very well-developed European operations at this point in their history. He showed the game to Ron Judy at CES and told him that this would be absolutely perfect for that Game Boy thing that you're developing Mm -hmm. and really got Nintendo interested in it. So this CES is very critical because all of these parties see the game for the first time. Right. Soon after that, it's released on PC in the US and in the UK through Spectrum Holobyte and Mirasoft. It does very well. I mean, computer games never do as well as console games. It's a smaller install base. Piracy takes away some sales. It's just a different market. But for a computer game, it does pretty darn well. And that's the first version of Tetris that comes out in the West is that PC version. In the meantime, things change in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Robert Stein, up to this point, has been negotiating with the Academy of Science, which is where Alexei Pezhitnov is working. At some point in here, another Soviet organization learns of the existence of this game and of all these negotiations going on, and that's the Electronorg Technica, which is the ministry uh, in charge of the import and export of software to the Soviet Union. This is actually a trade organization. So they actually do have a official government arm for this kind of thing. They do, exactly. It's just nobody had found them or gotten them involved to this point <laughs> yet. So Electronorg Technica, which is Elorg for short, and that's how we'll refer to them from now on because their full name is mouthful. Elorg learns about these Tetris negotiations, and so they take them over, and they're not happy. They think that Bajitnov has made a mess of things, which he probably has, but in his defense, he's he, a computer scientist. Who makes some games and is doing an yeah. interesting thing. He doesn't do contract negotiation. I mean, you know, you're a computer science network administrator type guy. How about if one day, you know... Somebody tapped you on the shoulder and was like, oh, by the way, you are now responsible for negotiating this business deal on behalf of your country with this uh, other company. Would you feel ready to do that? That sounds a lot like how my day-to-day life is anyway, so no. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so, you know, obviously Pajitnov's not a real negotiator, but now real negotiators are taking over. They finally get something done in May of 1988. Mm -hmm. So just as a reminder, Stein granted the rights to Mirosoft Mm -hmm. in June 1987. Oh, dear. Rights that he did not have. Right. He does finally get those rights in May of 1988. A little late, but okay. 
at this point, he gets all of the computer rights to Tetris. So before, they were really just negotiating over the IBM PC. But at this point, he does get all of the computer rights. Okay, so everything that is called a computer. That's right. And in his mind, that includes consoles, because he then sends a memo to Mirsoft saying that those rights include the console rights. Hmm. So now that the rights issue on the consoles is settled, Mirsoft turns around and sublicenses the console rights and the arcade rights. Nobody's even talked about arcade rights yet, okay? They just generate new licenses. So now Mirsoft is licensing arcade rights. And they don't actually even have arcade rights. Nobody has arcade rights. Robert Stein doesn't even think that he has arcade right. rights. So Robert Stein <laughs> generates console rights just out of the air. Out of thin air, yes. And then Mirsoft goes, well, I already got these two. I'm going to generate arcade rights exactly. out of the air. This is the most, this has got to be, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of licensing negotiations that get complex in the video game industry, but this has got to be the most ridiculous set of rights transfers that has ever happened in the history of anything. It's like binary fission, asexual reproduction of rights. It's like, here, I'm going to give you some rights. You now have two. Oh, great. Now that we have two, I'm going to give out these rights. I have three. Exactly. So neither Spectrum, Holobyte, nor Mirasoft are in the console business. They're strictly in the computer game business. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're not in the arcade game business. So now comes the time to sublicense these rights. And here's where things get complicated again, because you have these two semi-independent organizations that both have these rights, Mirasoft and Spectrum Holobyte. Right, because they have this reciprocal agreement where if I have the rights to something and I'm producing it, I'm going to hand it off to you and you have the option of first <laughs> refusal in your territory and back and forth. Right. So they're together, but they're not quite together. So Hank Rogers has been pestering Gilman Louie and Phil Adam for these Japanese rights. At this time, when all these rights issues are cleared up, Gilman grants the Japanese, only Japanese, mm -hmm. console and computer rights to Hank Rogers. At the exact same time, I mean, like literally at the exact same time, mm -hmm. McConaughey and Mirsoft, and actually McConaughey has stepped away from day-to-day -day operations of Mirsoft at this point. He's still the chairman, but there's actually a guy named Peter Belota that is actually now running Mirsoft day-to-day. -day. Right. Peter Belota at Mirsoft at the exact same time grants the worldwide console and arcade rights to Atari Games. Oh, dear. Atari Games being what used to be the arcade division of Atari, and then when Atari was split, became a company that was just in arcade games, but has recently established the Tengen division to place games on the NES as well. So they have a home console division, and they're in the arcades. All right. So they grant them the worldwide console rights and the worldwide arcade rights to Tetris. Gilman Louie has a signed contract with Hank Rogers for the computer rights. He does not, which turns out to be a good thing, have a signed contract yet with Hank Rogers for the Japanese console rights. Mm -hmm. 
So in between these two, after they've signed the one contract, but before they're signing the second contract, he just calls McConaughey and tells him all of the stuff that's going on. And McConaughey's like, no, 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 you can't do this. We've already given the worldwide rights to Atari games, which means that Hank Rogers can't have the Japanese rights because worldwide the Atari rights trump that. And they've already signed their contract with Atari games. Mm. So they reach an agreement where they're like, okay, fine. He can have the home computer rights in Japan because you've already signed that contract and nobody cares about the home computer rights in Japan anyway, because the home computer market in Japan for games is minuscule compared to the console market. Mm -hmm. So they're like, fine. We'll let that slide. We'll let that slide since you've already got a signed contract, but he cannot have the Japanese console rights because we've already given the worldwide rights to Atari games. Mm -hmm. So Gilman Louie has to go back to Hank Rogers and say, I'm sorry, I can't give you these rights. I, I screwed up. Right. Well, yeah, maybe. Not really. It wasn't really a screw-up. It was just Gilman Louie, because of the nature of the agreements that they had with Andromeda and Mirosoft and everyone, Gilman Louie thought that those were all his rights to give away, that he had the right to make that deal that Mirosoft didn't. But mm. that's what happens when you have this complex relationship where you have these semi-autonomous companies that are kind of co-equals and how the stuff gets divided gets confused. So it's not that he screwed up. It's that the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, which is the constant story of this entire Tetris craziness. <laughs> <laughs> so Hank Rogers, though, is a guy that, you know, when he knows what he wants, he's going to get what he wants. So he just turns around and he starts negotiating with Atari Games for those same Japanese console rights because Atari Games has the Tengen subsidiary in the United States now, but they don't have a Japanese presence. I mean, realistically, they're they probably going to real worldwide because they don't have a presence worldwide. So realistically, they were going to sub license anyway. Mm -hmm. So Hank Rogers opens a dialogue with Atari Games and with Hide Nakajima, who's in charge of Atari Games, and he does come away with those rights. Let's see. He secures those rights in October of 1988. Meanwhile, <laughs> in July 1988, Stein formally opens negotiations with Elorg for the arcade rights uh -huh. to Tetris. Arcade rights, remember, that have already been granted by Mirosoft to Atari Games, which, by the way, then turns around and sublicense the Japanese arcade rights, because, again, Atari Games is not in Japan, to Sega. Uh -huh. So to recap, at this point, we have Atari Games with the arcade rights to Tetris for the United States and Europe and all of these markets. They have subleased the Japanese arcade rights to Sega. So Sega has the arcade rights in Japan. We have Tengen, which is the console subsidiary of Atari games, with the home console rights, which basically means the NES, just because that's the only one that matters right now, even though others exist, to the game in the United States and Europe and, and all these markets. And you have Hank Rogers' bulletproof software with the console rights to Tetris in Japan. None of these rights have been granted by the Soviets. None of them. Um, <laughs> this sounds like a giant box of cardboard with kerosene on it, with someone with a match dancing around it, waiting for it to blow up <laughs> spectacularly. Pretty much. 
So in July of 1988, Robert Stein formally opens negotiations with Elorg for the arcade rights. He's not negotiating for the console rights because he thinks he already has those. Right. But he's, he, because of the computer stuff. Right. But he opens negotiation for the arcade rights. You see, at this point, the Soviets don't like Robert Stein very much anymore. Mm. They have not been getting royalty payments in a timely manner mm. from Andromeda for all the Tetris being sold in the West on computer platforms. And it's been very successful, as we said. So, I mean, they should be getting royalties, and they're not getting their royalties. They know that it's successful, but they're not getting the money. So they're kind of fed up with Stein by this point. And that's going to come back to kind of haunt them. So meanwhile, while Robert Stein is negotiating for rights that have already been sold on to other people, Tetris gets released in Japan by Hank Rogers. And there's actually a little interesting story in itself of that. Because Tetris was not your typical console game. I mean, obviously, the console market is really focused, especially in Japan, where when you get older, you're not supposed to, you know, fool around with stuff like games anymore. It's really a children's market. And Tetris just doesn't seem like it fits the mold of the typical shooter or RPG or whatnot that's in the NES market. So retailers don't want it. Hmm. Basically, in order to make it worth his while because of the cost of cartridges and whatnot, he needs to be able to order 100,000 cartridges for his first allotment. Ordering less than that, the, the numbers don't work. Mm -hmm. So he, orders, he puts an initial order of 100,000 cartridges. He sells 40,000. Not sells, but he gets commitments from distributors for 40,000 units. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. That is a problem. So you know, he goes to Yamauchi because he is fairly tight, all things considered, with Yamauchi. And says, I've got this game. I know that it is going to be a huge hit. But I can't release it because I'm going to go bankrupt on this stuff. So according to Hank Rogers, Yamuchi calls in Miyamoto, Shigeru mm -hmm. Miyamoto, and, and asks him, you know, is this a good game? And Miyamoto looks it over and is like, yes, <laughs> Yamuchi-san, this is a very good game. And so Nintendo, Yamauchi orders his right-hand man, Hiroshi Amanishi, to call up the distributors because Nintendo has a huge amount of cloud. I mean, we've talked about their cloud in the United States. Mm -hmm. Their cloud in Japan is even bigger because there's a whole distribution network that they basically own. I mean, they don't own it in the sense that they have physical ownership of it, but in terms of mind share, yeah. in terms of power, yeah, they it, own in, it. In terms of influence, it's sort of like, <laughs> you are a subsidiary of me. Exactly. So he has his right-hand man, Imanishi, call up the distributors and tell them, basically, order more copies of this game now. <laughs> still only results in 30,000 more orders. There's, there's a limit to Nintendo's influence. So he's still left 30,000 short of what he really needs to have. And the, the thing he worries about is that if it sells slowly at first, then they'll be discounting and then they'll be dumping and then the game will be done. Thankfully for him, it actually ends up being a huge hit. It sells out. It's released in November of 1988, and it sells very, very well. It ultimately sells 2 million copies in Japan. It doesn't sell that many right up front. That's over the life. It, it sells a couple hundred thousand very quickly within the first few months, and over the life of the product, it sells 2 million on the NES in Japan. That's good. So Hank Rogers is, is saved, <laughs> partially through the intervention of his good friend, Mr. Yamauchi at Nintendo. 
So now this game's doing well. Hank Rogers has been made aware, because he has a close relationship with Yamuchi, has been made aware of the Game Boy. So he knows the Game Boy is coming. And he desperately wants the handheld rights Mm -hmm. to Tetris so that he can put it on the Game Boy. Right. At this point, those rights have not been given out. And everyone's on the same page that those rights haven't been given out. Okay. There's, there's no confusion. It's not considered like mini console or something. No, handheld rights are considered something completely different because handhelds are a lot of different things. I mean, the Game Boy is a programmable system, so in that sense, it's a miniature console. But you also have things like Game & Watch, which were single-game LCD units. You have the old LED games that Mattel and Coleco and whatnot did back in the late 70s. There's a lot of things that can be considered electronic handhelds. You have like the Tiger Electronics cheapy little games, you know. So handhelds means more than just a Game Boy or a programmable handheld system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a subset of that. So these rights haven't been given out. So at this point, you have Hank Rogers getting interested in the handheld rights. He absolutely wants those. And Arakawa very much wants Tetris for Game Boy as well. Minoru Arakawa, who is Yamauchi's son-in-law and who is president of Nintendo of America. Mm-hmm. Nintendo of America very much wants these rights because they've heard all about Tetris too because Phil Adams showed Ron Judy and that's been making the rounds and they can see that this game's taking off. It's hard to tell. Hank Rogers has always taken credit for interesting Nintendo and Tetris. There's obviously conflicting stories there and I'm not sure that's true. The biggest story that Hank Rogers always tells is he's the one that got them to bundle it with the Game Boy. Mm -hmm. The way Hank Rogers tells the story, they were going to go with Mario, you know, the Super Mario Land game. And, you know, Minoru Arakawa asked him, why would I want to bundle this with the Game Boy? Why wouldn't I bundle Mario, you know, our proven software? And Hank Rogers' response was, if you want every 6 to 12-year-old in the country playing your Game Boy, put Mario in it. If you want everybody playing your Game Boy, bundle Tetris with it. Pretty much he recognized the fact that Tetris had a cross-generation appeal. Because as we said before, we had people who were like, video game, meh. Right. Look at it and go, I like this. Right. And was Hank Rogers the one that convinced him? I mean, he certainly says he is. So we have his story on that. And we don't have any contradicting stories, uh, in part because Minoru Arakawa is very shy and doesn't talk to anybody about anything. So did they need Hank Rogers to convince them, or did they come to that agreement on their own? Honestly, I can't say for certain. But that's that's the story that's out there. Certainly, I think that they were interested in Tetris even without Hank Rogers' input, though it's very possible that Hank Rogers was the one that convinced them to bundle the Tetris software with the Game Boy. Mm-hmm. It, it may be. I mean, I, I would certainly, it's certainly believable. It's just one of those things that more it's information hard. is needed. More research. <laughs> exactly. But of course, before you get there, you have to get the rights. Yeah. So Nintendo and Hank Rogers, Bulletproof Software, have a very close relationship. So basically, Nintendo, through Arakawa, Nintendo of America, pledges to back Rogers in his quest to get the handheld rights. You know, if he needs financial support to secure the rights, you, you know, Lawyers, NOA's... translators, whatever. Right, is going to back his play. On November 15th, Rogers contacts Stein to get the handheld rights, but... Stein doesn't have those rights because he 
is stuck in negotiation hell with Elorg and with Elorg's new head, Evgeny Nikolaevich Belikov, who is known to be a very shrewd negotiator. He was not in charge of Elorg when the negotiation, when they took over the Tetris negotiations, but he has just recently taken charge. And so now the negotiations have entered a completely different kind of tenor. And he's a very shrewd negotiator, Belikov is, and he's very fed up with Stein because they're not getting their royalties. Mm -hmm. And now you've got all these people banging down his door for the rights because Mirsoft needs to secure arcade rights because they've sold on arcade rights. And Rogers needs handheld rights and everyone wants all these rights. And Stein keeps stalling them, stalling them, stalling them because he can't get the rights because he's having trouble negotiating. So the Russians are fed up with Stein. Mirsoft and Nintendo and everybody on the Western side are fed up with Stein. And he just seemed to be this little linchpin that is the little thing between the Russians and everyone else. Right, but he doesn't really have to be. And that's sort of like the emperor has no clothes sort of deal <laughs> yeah, here. Because you have everyone in the West going, well, obviously we have to deal with this Stein person because he's the one who originally came to us and that's what we're doing with. And Elorg's going, well, we've been dealing with this Stein guy and meh. Right. So what happens is that both the Mir group and Rogers decide at the exact same moment to cut out the middleman Stein and ne directly negotiate for the rights they want. Meanwhile, Stein probably figures, even though he, I, I don't think he knows that they've done this, he probably figures someone's going to do that eventually if he can't get the rights mm -hmm. that he's promised, decides at the same time that he has to go to Moscow himself to negotiate in person. So in February 1989, Kevin Maxwell of mm -hmm. the Mir Group, Hank Rogers representing Bulletproof Software and Nintendo, and Robert Stein of Andromeda Software all come to Moscow at the exact same time. Completely unplanned. Completely unplanned. They all resolved to go there on their own to negotiate in person. Are you sure this wasn't a setup or something here? <laughs> I don't like the story you get out of a movie or something. Somebody needs to make a movie of this. Seriously. Somebody needs to make a movie about the Tetris negotiations because, my God. <laughs> the insanity. <laughs> Rogers shows up unannounced. He doesn't have an appointment. He doesn't know anybody. He just takes it upon himself to fly to Moscow himself. He finds an interpreter somewhere. He shows up unannounced at Elorg. And in, in, in the Soviet Union, kind of the etiquette and the protocol in the Soviet Union, you don't show up unannounced anywhere. It's, a, it's bureaucratic. I mean, the Soviet Union is bureaucratic. It, it's a giant bureaucratic <laughs> system, and everything's done by appointment. You want to buy bread, you're doing it by appointment. I mean, you know, they're, they're the Vogons, right? I mean, they're the Vogons <laughs> of, of Earth. So, <laughs> Vogons of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame. Exactly. So this is all highly irregular. Mm -hmm. But Hank Rogers is a very determined type of man. And when he has something in his sights, he gets it. So he somehow finds an interpreter. He somehow gets a taxi to take him to Elork. And he somehow gets himself invited in to speak to Belikov. Wow. Maxwell, I think, has an appointment. Stein, I think, has an appointment. But they all descend literally the exact same time. I mean, you know, someone, I don't think anyone's ever asked any of them if they ever saw each other in the hallway. But literally, they could have seen each other in a hallway. So the exact same day. <laughs> exactly. Oh, dear. Exact same period of time. 
On February the 21st, Rogers concludes a deal with the Soviets for the handheld rights mm -hmm. for Tetris. He's told the story different ways at different times. Either on that day, right after they make the deal when they're celebrating, or a couple of days earlier when he started the negotiations. So it was either at the beginning of the process or the end of the process. He's literally told the story both ways. Mm -hmm. He pulls out a copy of the Tetris that he's selling in Japan because he's proud of it. And he's like, and see, here's the beautiful package for what we're selling right now on the Famicom in Japan. Uh, and Belikov is basically like, what is this? What is that? I didn't tell you to do that. We haven't sold any rights. He's like, no, no, no. I, I, got, the, I got the rights to, to this from Atari Games. It's like, from who? We haven't authorized any rights to Atari Games. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Atari Games. They have the arcade rights and they have the home rights. It's like, arcade rights? <laughs> we haven't given any arcade rights. So all of this comes out. And then Hank Roberts is like, Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I apparently have stepped on a landmine. <laughs> because he's been manufacturing and selling Tetris like wildfire. And if he suddenly has to basically destroy all of his stock and, like, give all the money back to the Soviets or whatnot because it was unauthorized, he is royally placed in a anatomically perilous position. Yep. <laughs> Up the creek with no paddle, going over Niagara Falls with sharp pointy rocks at the bottom. And, uh, you know, at that point, he might as well just go and, for, and perform an anatomically impossible act on himself. Yep. <laughs> so he says, whoa, okay, I have been lied to, man. And I mean, you know, he's, he's overplaying. I mean, he hasn't really been lied to, but in, in a way, I mean, he did think they had the rights. He's like, I've been lied to. I am so sorry. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to immediately write you a check mm -hmm. right here for royalties on every unit I've already sold in Japan. That's a good way to start. I want to make this right. And then I want to figure out a way that we can continue doing business together legally in a way that, that benefits us both. And Belikov is like, you know, all right, you know, I, I probably appreciate that he was square with him. I mean, you know, and this is just speculation on my part now, but after months of going back and forth with Stein about getting royalties that they're having terrible trouble getting, I'm sure it meant a lot to Belikov that this guy literally hands him a check right then and there. Once he realizes how bad <laughs> things were, it's like, I thought you were getting the money. Have some money. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to honor the handheld rights that, you we know, just, we just gave you. Right. And we are going to give you three weeks to put together a proposal for the worldwide console rights mm. for Tetris. Okay. So that's what they do. This is on February the 21st. Mm -hmm. Now let's go to February the 22nd. <laughs> because Rogers was the first one in the door. On February the 22nd, Robert Stein comes in to meet with Belikov. And just about the first thing that happens is he is handed an amendment to their original contract. <laughs> the one that they signed in May 1988. Yeah. This amendment, which is to be backdated to May 10th, 1988. So it's 
it's as if it was in force the entire time mm-hmm. of the contract, is primarily concerned with penalties for late royalty payments mm-hmm. because they've been having trouble getting their royalty money. And so Stein reads over the contract, but he figures, okay, yeah, they're upset that, you know, they haven't been getting their royalties. Yeah, obviously they just want to do something about that. So he sees that, and plus he's desperate to get the coin-op rights. He needs the coin-op rights because there are coin-operated games at this point in the marketplace. Right, which there shouldn't be. (laughs) So he signs it, and he pays very little attention to this one little line. Mm -hmm. You know how we said uh, earlier that the definition of a computer was going to become very important? Yeah. Well, they added one little line in this amendment, saying that the rights are for PC computers which consist of a processor, monitor, disk drive, keyboard, and operating system. Hmm. They define exactly what a computer is <laughs> in the context. they've already been screwed by it, and they just had watchers in there who just bring them to light, and so they're like, all right, Mr. Stein, we're going to alter the deal. That's right. Quite frankly, all of that late penalty, uh, late royalty penalty stuff is probably just smokescreen. They probably don't even care. But they do that. They put the elaborate show of being upset about the royalties and saying we need to put these penalties in. In order to pretty much yank away as many rights as they can. In order so that he doesn't notice the important part Mm -hmm. of the amendment, which is that we are clearly defining what a computer is so that you can't come back later and argue that in the initial agreement, console rights were included. Mm-hmm, because we're explicitly doing this because we've just found out that you've been claiming you had console rights. And Robert Stein signs that amendment. And it's as if that amendment has been enforced the entire time of their deal, which means that he never had console rights at all. And kid, always read your contract. <laughs> well, he did read it. Everyone was focused on the royalty thing. I mean, that was the genius. I mean, you know, the Soviets were very shrewd negotiators in this. Mm-hmm. They deliberately made a big deal about the late royalties. So Sorry, that... He's all concentrated on the royalties. He didn't pay fine, detailed mm-hmm. things. So. Right. Because Stein's not an idiot. He read through everything, but he focused on what he thought was the important part, which was royalties. He didn't read the whole thing for legalese or what might have changed elsewhere. Right. So, so he signs it. And after he signs it on February 24th, two days later, he is given the worldwide coin-op rights. So he, he dodged that bullet. All of those coin-op rights he gave out to everybody are now, are now valid because he got the coin-op rights and he immediately sublet the coin-op rights or sublicensed the coin-op rights to Mirsoft. So then Mirsoft's sublicensing of the coin-op rights to Atari Games and then Atari Games' subsequent sublicensing of the Japanese coin-op rights to Sega is now all legal because we have a chain of rights all the way back to the original rights holder. Mm-hmm. However... He doesn't have the consoles anymore. He does not. I mean, he, he technically never had them, but you could at least make the argument. It was at least ambiguous enough you could make the argument. But now it's defined. It is no longer ambiguous. So that same February 22nd, the same day that Belikov is meeting with Stein, he is also meeting with Maxwell, and probably at the exact same time, because I forget which one it was, whether it was Stein or Maxwell, that told David Sheff that... Belikov was constantly leaving the room during their negotiations. But the point is, he was constantly leaving the room during the negotiations, which means he was probably literally talking to both of them at, at the exact the same, same time. time. In different rooms. Exactly. He meets with Kevin Maxwell, and then Kevin Maxwell also screws up. 
And it's again because there are so many rights that have been granted now. And everyone keeps up licensing that there's nobody is really aware of who all has been given what rights, when, how, why. So mm. Kevin Maxwell is a step removed from all of this because he doesn't just oversee Mirasoft. He oversees a lot of different aspects of the Mir Group's business. So he's not up on all of the who did what to whom when. And so you have Belikov knowing that he now has full, complete knowledge of how to write things going on and is negotiating with that knowledge with people who don't have the full idea of how all the rights have been going off. And so he's going, okay, you can have the handheld, you can have the computer in arcade, and you, my friend, let's see what we will be giving you today. Belikov is a crafty SOB. Yeah. So he presents Maxwell with the copy of Tetris on the Famicom that Hank Rogers presented to him. Mm-hmm. And plays dumb. And he's like, what is this? Ah. And Kevin Maxwell's like, not even realizing, because he wasn't directly involved in this, mm -hmm. that Bulletproof Software had what they thought was legally acquired the rights yep. from Atari Games, which acquired them from Mirsoft, says, that's got to be pirated. That is pirated. We haven't given out those rights. Hmm. He admits that in his mind, they didn't have the console rights, which mm -hmm. further weakens any arguments that Stein might make later on. That he had the console rights. <laughs> because Maxwell himself says that that is not an officially authorized game by us. That is pirated. And of course, it was officially authorized by them, even though Mirosoft didn't actually have the console rights they thought they did. Everyone down the chain thought yeah. that they had the rights, and so Hank Rogers acquired them properly. It is not a bootleg. Yep. <laughs> so that was Maxwell's mistake. And then Maxwell comes away with the worst deal of all of them. Aww. Maxwell signs an agreement, giving him the right of first refusal on, well, giving him uh, the right to bid on the coin-op and handheld rights, the right of first refusal on, on some of those rights. He's given the opportunity to bid on rights that Belikov has already given away hmm. because he's already decided they haven't signed the agreement yet, but he's already decided to give the coin op rights to Stein and he's already given the handheld rights to Rogers. So now he's giving Maxwell the right to bid on those rights, but he doesn't No care. intention of giving them to him. And he knows that, but Maxwell doesn't know that. Uh, and in return, they get the rights to some uh, mirror group electronic reference properties in the to, published in uh, Soviet Union, like Collier's Encyclopedia. They get the rights to publish Collier's Encyclopedia in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You know, other stuff that the Mir Group owns, non-video game related. So effectively, he gets stuff for free, and Mirsoft gets nothing. They lose. Good day, sir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that is the very eventful period of February 21st to February 24th, when everybody converges on Moscow. <laughs> and it, Moscow owns them. <laughs> it is the crux of the, of the story. At this point, Rogers goes back to Arakawa and Howard Lincoln, the executive vice president of Nintendo of America, and tells them that they have this opportunity to acquire the worldwide console rights. Mm -hmm. And Rogers is too small potato to be able to to do that himself. That's going to require a significant commitment. I mean, he's going to want to continue selling it in Japan as he has been, but he's not going to be not set up for worldwide distribution or anything. So basically, 
he becomes Nintendo's contact to negotiate on behalf of Nintendo for those worldwide console rights. And the main reason that Nintendo wants these rights, yeah, they're, they're probably going to make some money on it, but they are in this for one thing and one thing only, really. Revenge. Revenge. Because right now, the company that thinks they have the rights to Tetris is Atari Games. <laughs> and as I believe we discussed before in one of our previous episodes, Atari Games and its Tengen console subsidiary had taken it upon itself to illegally reverse engineer the Nintendo Entertainment System by filing a false affidavit with the U.S. Patent Office in order to get access to the original schematics and have now started releasing unauthorized Nintendo games. And they have also, as of December 1988, a couple of months before all of this, filed suit against Nintendo for monopolistic practices in the video game market. So Nintendo is a little ticked off. And now they have a chance to snatch Tetris right out from under Atari games because Atari games thinks they have it and they don't. <laughs> and so according to David Chef in Game Over, I mean, Howard Lincoln told him, it's like, yeah, our primary motivator was revenge. And David Chef's a journalist telling a story, so that might be slightly exaggerated. But even if it wasn't their primary motivator, I think that they were kind of happy that they had this opportunity fall into their lap. Yeah. So Rogers goes back with an attorney, a well-known and renowned international law attorney that had done a lot of work with the Soviet Union in the past named John Hughes. Doesn't know anything about video games, but he doesn't need to because he's just, you know, he's really good at international law. And in March, they go back to Moscow to continue negotiations. And Rogers on March 15th presents Nintendo's offer, which has a substantial guarantee of upfront money. Mm. It hasn't been... No one's divulged what that was. Okay. So, but it but was pretty much you're saying here's an upfront payment on royalties, it, and and it was going to be substantial. I mean, more than one would normally expect. They wanted to bowl over the Russians with their offer and just get this Done settled and over with. We, exactly. We don't care. We are going to acquire these rights come hell or high water. Now, as part of their agreement with Maxwell that we talked about previously, they gave the Mir Group right of first refusal on any future rights negotiations. So they sent Maxwell a fax or a telex, I think it was may have been a telex, one or the other, on March 15th, saying, there has been a bidder for these rights. You have until March 16th to state your interest in these same rights. And they knew because of the way they were doing it and time zone differences and all of this, they knew there's no way the Maxwells could respond by March 16th. So they followed the letter of their agreement with Maxwell while very deliberately violating its spirit. Oh, my. So Maxwell is is out of the running for this now, and they keep their negotiations going. And on March 22nd, Lincoln and Arakawa themselves travel to Moscow to conclude the negotiations, and they get the worldwide consul rights to Tetris. And then on March 31st, Howard Lincoln sends a fax to Hidei Nakajima at Atari Games, telling him that he must immediately cease and desist all selling and marketing of Tetris and destroy all unsold copies because they are unauthorized versions of Tetris for which the rights are held by Nintendo. This is why we have two copies of Tetris on Nintendo. That's right. 
there was a lawsuit. Tingen sued again. In this case, they didn't have a leg to stand on because of that very clear amendment to the contract mm-hmm. that specifically said that a PC had to have a monitor and a keyboard and a disk drive and an operating system, none of which the NES had. In Japan, there was the Famicom disk system. There was no disk drive in the U.S. at all. And, of course, none of those other things were part of yep. uh, the, the NES or the Famicom, either one. So no keyboard, no monitor. No operating system. So that was an open and shut case. In November, the judge dismissed the case, and you know all those Tetris copies had to be destroyed. And Nintendo had their revenge on Tengen for what they did <laughs> with their <laughs> own reverse engineering and lawsuit. In the meantime, however, it's time to inform Daddy Maxwell of everything that happened and how Uh-oh. these rights were snatched out from under them. Oops. Robert Maxwell, in the words of one witness, went apeshit. I.e., he was not happy. He was furious because he felt that there had been an agreement mm-hmm. and that that agreement was deliberately violated by the Soviets, and it was the principle of the thing. Mm -hmm. The Mir Group is huge. I mean, in the context of the entire Mir Group, even uh, one highly successful game like Tetris... A drop in the water. Yeah, a drop in the bucket. drop in the bucket. But it was the principle of the thing, because there was an agreement, and then there wasn't. Mm -hmm. And Robert Maxwell, you know, as as they put in David Sheff, as David Sheff put it in his book, when an assistant would tell Robert Maxwell the prime minister is calling, the first thing Robert Maxwell would ask is, which one? Hmm. This is one of the most influential men in the world. He published the memoirs of several Soviet leaders. He personally knew Khrushchev and Brezhnev and Andropov, several of the Soviet leaders that preceded Gorbachev. He is highly influential in the Soviet Union as well as in the United Kingdom. So he's so well-connected, the fact that the Soviet actually pretty much pulled one over on him, pretty much makes him livid. So he calls his friends in the Central Committee, in the Kremlin, Mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union, and he tells them in no uncertain terms that he is not happy. And he even meets personally with Gorbachev. Now, uh, about many things. They weren't just meeting about that. But that was one of the topics of conversation. So now Tetris has become the topic of conversation with one of the most powerful leaders in the entire world. Mikhail Gorbachev. That's insane. And now the Central Committee, not the whole, members of the Central Committee, members of the high Soviet leadership, begin asking questions. And what's happened here? Who who is this Elorg? Who is this Belikov? What have you people done? (laughs) And that's when the KGB gets involved and there are investigations and there are discussions and... There's a lot of back and forth between the scientific academies on one side and certain members of the Central Committee on the other side. Oh, dear. And I imagine Belikov was uh, not happy. No, definitely not. And in the end, all the deals were upheld because they were good deals and there was really nothing to be said. So it was a lot of smoke, but no fire. All of the deals continued as they were. But that's how you get the KGB involved in the story and how you get the highest levels of government <laughs> involved over a game about falling blocks. That's nuts. And then, of course, the rest, as they say, is history. Tetris proves to be the perfect complement to the Game Boy. It's released in June 1989, Japan, July in the United States. Over the life of the Game Boy, it sell like some 30 million units of Tetris. Tetris becomes 
the game that's the real system seller. Everybody plays it at all ages, all levels. It becomes humongous, and eventually the Soviet... I mean, we grew up when this game came out on the Game Boy. I remember my uncles who did not play games. A couple of them actually had Game Boys, and all they had was Tetris on it. And they be out at some sort of picnic or something and they were playing it and handing it back and forth like i got this score another uncle would try to beat it exactly it became a phenomenon it's still a phenomenon uh never saw much for it of course when all of those rights were initially sold because soviet system but eventually the soviet union fell and eventually as rights began to expire and whatnot hank rogers uh was able to work with alexei pagetnov to form a company called the Tetris Company that could acquire all of the various rights that had gone out to various places over time. And so now the Tetris Company is the holder of all rights to Tetris, as they still are to this day. And Alexei Pashitnov gets to enjoy the fruits of, <laughs> of, his, in, in, yeah, of his labors. And that is Tetris. The complete story. <laughs> the craziest rights and licensing story of the entire video game industry. That's pretty nuts. I'm not even sure where you go from there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's going to be our topic of discussion next time, Alex? Well, I think it might be nice to take a pause. You know, we started this podcast in our first couple of episodes kind of explaining who I am, what I'm doing, who you are as well, and, and kind of what's going on. This is all in support of the research that I have done and continuing to do towards writing a series of books on the video game industry, which is the ultimate goal of all of these endeavors. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of exciting developments, both in my own life and and just in the scholarship in general over the last little bit here. And almost a whole year we've been doing this podcast. We started in September. Exactly. And, And I just want to kind of, I think, go back and take stock of kind of where things are and kind of highlights some of the other great work that's being done as well, not just my own work, because right now there is a lot of brilliant work being done to kind of tell the story of video games. And I think it would be nice to just kind of go over some of that and explain how this field is really starting to develop. All right. That sounds like a plan. We're going to go over how things have changed in Alex's research over the last eight to ten months and what he thinks is a lot of the other great work out there. We will see you next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Mm-hmm.